But as we turn our hearts to God's Word this morning, Romans chapter 1, um, I want to uh, start off with just giving a little review from last week and continuing on that theme. And um, the popular uh, Bible expositor who's now deceased, Donald Gray Barnhouse, he began teaching in Philadelphia at the church there, uh, and the, the book he taught through was Romans. And basically, his broadcast uh, was heard for 11 years, a weekly message out of Romans. Now, we're not going to be in Romans for 11 years, trust me, but uh, that's just amazing to me. And he says this about the, the book of Romans. He says, a, ty- a scientist may say that mother's milk is the most perfect food known to men and may give you an analysis showing all of its chemical components, a list of vitamins it contains, and an estimated list of ca- uh, calories in a given quantity, a baby will take that milk without the remotest knowledge of its content. And that baby will grow day by day, smiling and thriving in its ignorance. So it is with the profound truths of the Word of God. Uh, it's been said that, that Romans will delight the greatest uh, 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 person and captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet, it has the ability to bring to tears the humblest soul and refreshment to the simple-minded. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. The book of Romans took a... um, mere tinker, John Bunyan, and turned him into a spiritual giant, the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress and the Holy War. Uh, This letter quotes the Old Testament about 57, 60 times throughout its book, more than any other New Testament book. It repeatedly uses the word God 154 times, the word law 77 times, Christ 66 times, sin 45 times, Lord 44 times, and faith 40 times. Uh, John MacArthur says, Romans answers many questions concerning man and concerning God. Some of the more significant questions that it answers are, And he continues, he says, What is the good news of God? Is Jesus really God? What is God like? How can God send people to hell? Why do men reject God and his son, Jesus Christ? Why are there false religions and idols? What is man's biggest sin? Why are there sexual perversions, hatred, crime, dishonesty, and all other evils in the world? And why are they so pervasive and rampant? He continues, he says, what is the standard by which God condemns people? How can a person who has never heard the gospel be held spiritually responsible? Do Jews have a greater responsibility to believe than to Gentiles? Who is a true Jew? Is there any spiritual advantage to being Jewish? How good is man in himself? How evil is man in himself? Can a person keep God's law perfect, perfectly? How can a person know he is a sinner? How can a sinner be forgiven and justified by God? How is a Christian related to Abraham? And what is the importance of Christ's death? And what is the importance of the resurrection? What is the importance of of his present life in heaven, for whom did Christ die? Where can men find real peace and hope? How are all men related spiritually to Adam, and how are believers related spiritually to Jesus Christ? What is grace, and what does it do? How are God's grace and God's law related? How does a person die spiritually and become reborn? What is the Christian's relationship to sin? How important is obedience in the Christian life? Why is living a Christian life such a struggle? How many natures does a Christian have? Still more questions are, what does the Holy Spirit do for the believer? How intimate is the Christian's relationship to God? Why is there suffering? 
Will the world ever be different? What are election and predestination? How can Christians pray properly? How secure is a believer's salvation? What is God's present plan for Israel? What is his future plan for Israel? Why and for what have the Gentiles been chosen by God? What is the Christian's responsibility to Jews and to Israel? What is true spiritual commitment? What is a Christian's relationship to the world in general, to the unsaved, even to other Christians, even to human government? What is genuine love and how does it work? How do Christians deal with issues that are neither right nor wrong in themselves? What is true freedom? And how important is unity in the church? Now you can see just by that list, it filled two pages of my notes, of questions that Paul answers in the book of Romans. Incredible book. There's an anonymous poet, and he wrote this little poem about Romans. He says, O long and dark the stairs I trod, with trembling feet to find my God. Gaining a foothold bit by bit, then slipping back and losing it, never progressing, striving still, with weakening grasp and faltering will. Bleeding to climb to God while he serenely smiled, unnoting me. Then came a certain time when I loosened my hold and fell thereby down to the lowest step, my fall, as if I had not climbed at all. Now when I lay despairing there, listen, a foothold, footfall on the stair, on that same stair where I afraid faltered and fell and lay dismayed. And lo, when hope had ceased to be, my God came down the stairs to me. That's what we want to pray, that God will come down the stairs to our heart as we go through this for the next couple of years, this tremendous letter of Paul. And last week we looked at just some introductory things. We know the author is Paul, and you can read commentary after commentary, and you can find hundreds of pages of people that dispute that fact. Well, we don't believe the author was Paul. The very first word says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's good enough for me. Paul's the author. Let's move on. The date he wrote around 56, 58 A.D., He wrote to a church in Rome. He wrote for the express purpose of preparing his visit, defending the gospel, and resolving conflicts that occurred in the new church between Jews and Gentiles. Before this time, they they were separated. And now the new church was here, and they were called together to worship together. We looked at the outline briefly, and uh, that's there in in your notes. And you can look at that or it was last week, actually, Um, but it's up on the screen. You have an introduction, you have sin, you have salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. That takes us through the entire book. That's a general outline, but that's kind of what we're going to be following. Last week, we looked at Paul the man and how they started this book. It's, It's very common. They named the author first, right up front. And Paul was one of those individuals who had a radical conversion. He experienced a a radical conversion by Christ visiting him on the road to Damascus. Before that, he was executing Christians at will as a Pharisee. Now he was converted. He was blinded for a time. And the Lord said, hey, I've done this so that you can become my servant. And God moved him to uh, work for him in a miraculous way. The one thing we can get out of that is we have to ask ourselves, has my heart been changed by personally experiencing God's grace the way Paul did? Have we experienced God's grace in Christ's death and his resurrection? Am I like Paul, a new person through faith in Christ? You can be if you're not here this morning. You can be. You simply cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me. The second thing we looked at last week was Paul's master, that he was a slave of Christ. It says a servant in the ESV, but the word there is doulos, it's slave. That's what it means. We don't like to use that word a lot today in our society. It has connotations, but it takes us back to the Civil War. <laughs> but we have to understand, during the Paul, time of Paul, there were probably anywhere from 500 to 600,000 slaves in Rome. Just in Rome alone. 
everybody owned or was owned by somebody else. It's interesting that in the New Testament, most of the New Testament writers refer to themselves as a slave of Christ. Even in Philippians, if you look over at Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, verses 5 to 7, we see that Jesus Christ even is referred to as a slave. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves which was in Christ, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a what? Of a servant, of a slave. Jesus Christ himself was a slave to the will of God. So we began last week of listing some characteristics of what a slave of Jesus Christ is. How do we know? And today, I think in our world of self-rights and selfishness and everything that's going on around us, um, it's very important that we understand that as Christians, we're called not to a life of... of uh, you know, self, self-interested things and providing for ourselves, continuing and all that stuff and concerned about number one. That's not what we're called to be as Christ. We're called to be a slave of Christ in every way. And so a lot of people think that they become a Christian and they can just go do whatever they want because all their sins are forgiven. So, hey, let's just go live it up. That's not true. And we're going to be looking at that. The first thing we looked at last week, just in way in review, continuing, is total submission to the master. That's what a slave was required to do. We looked at Matthew chapter 8, where he's speaking to a centurion soldier. And he says, go, about the one under him, under his authority, go. And he goes, and to another he says, come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. Basic, number one, bottom line, when you come to Christ, your will is not your own anymore. You're submitting to someone greater than you. It tells us that a a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. The servant replied in Luke 14, 22, Sir, what you have commanded is done. And even Jesus said that he laid this down an example in John 13. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, because a servant is not greater than his master. We're not called to a lifestyle in Christianity just to kind of do our own thing. We have to get that out of our mind. We're called, when we come to Christ, we yield our lives in submission to his will, not our own. I remember when I was going to school, graduated from high school, went to college, Indiana University, Pennsylvania. I was working on my degree in criminology. And lo and behold, right in the middle of my degree, I get saved. I wanted to go be a police officer, something like that, something law enforcement. And God changed my whole direction, my whole purpose. I was not a person that would ever think that you stand in front of people every week and, and speak. That would just be my last thing on my list. And even to this day, it's uncomfortable for me to do it, but it's what God has commanded me and called me to do. Um, and so when you come to Christ, your will is not your own anymore. You're in total submission to your new master. And that's a stumbling block for a lot of folks right there. And that's what Jesus taught, right? He says, if you want to come after me and follow me, what? You have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me daily. You have to die to yourself continually. It's not about what we want, beloved. It's about what God wants us to do, wants to be part of, what his will is. It's not our own will. Now, the Bible does say that he gives us the desires of of our hearts. So I think when we're living in accord with God's word and we're living a righteous life and and we're trying our best to obey even when we stumble and fall, we know our position in Christ is still that of forgiven. We go to God and we confess our sin and claim his forgiveness, that somehow God allows us to continue to, to, to be used. And we, we're, we're used in a way that is submissive to our own will. And sometimes God changes our desires. 
I was so privileged to have an opportunity after I completed my degree in criminology and I went to Bible college and I was in ministry and I was in between churches in Southern California. God actually gave me the opportunity to work in law enforcement to some degree with the district attorney's office. And I knew within three months, there's no way I could ever be a police officer. I would go nuts. Just all the bureaucracy and all the stuff they have to go through and they're arresting this guy today and tomorrow he's out, you know, thumbing his nose at him. It's just crazy. And it's, it's even worse today. This was many years ago, but it's even worse today. And so God gave me kind of a glimpse of that kind of, a, of, of work. And it interests me. It still interests me today. Hence, I'm serving as a chaplain and other things with the police department. And so God blesses you with the desires of your heart. But there's no way I would ever do that um, job on a, on a full-time basis, nor could I. Just not cut out for that kind of thing. And so our submission to God's will is important, our submission to the master. Secondly, we notice that we have no rights of our own. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, then why are you boasting that you have it? See, one of the things we have to understand as Christians, everything that comes into our life, every blessing, everything that comes into our life is by the direct hand of God. Now, he may gift you with a good work ethic. He may gift you with intellect. He may gift you with the ability to do sales or work hard in this area or that area. But we have to understand that it's not our own doing. That's something that God has gifted us. He created you that way. And so we don't have rights on our own. We don't have any personal rights. We don't have the right to stand here before God and say, well, I'm a self-made man. No, you're not. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God, that you're not your own, that you've been bought with a price? He says, so glorify God in your body. See, it's very important that we understand as believers that we don't have rights to go out and do as we please. And unfortunately, a lot of people misunderstand grace as just that. They think, oh, we're covered by the grace of God. We can go do whatever we want. You know, we don't want to be legalistic, so we just, you know, live and let live and and let God take care of the rest. That's a false teaching. We're called to be disciplined. We're called to live righteously. We're called to do what the Word of God tells us to do. We don't have our own agenda. We don't have our own rights. And then thirdly, a slave is one who honors his earthly masters at all times. Honors his earthly master at all times. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own masters as worthy of honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Why do we put this in here? Because we all work. We all have a job for the most part. We all have had a job. If we're unemployed now, hopefully we'll get another one. But at some point along the way, you're going to have somebody over you. And the Word of God addresses that. He, it addresses it very directly. Even over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, it says, Slaves, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And not only to those who are good and gentle, listen to this, but also to those who are unreasonable. Some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, yeah, you don't know my boss. My boss is a total jerk. You know, if you had to work for my boss, you wouldn't have a good attitude. I can't say whether I would or not, but if I didn't, I'd be being living in disobedience to God's word because we're called to be submissive to those over us, to honor them, even though they don't deserve honor. It says in verse 19 of that same 1 Peter 2, it says, for this finds favor... If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under the sorrows and when suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? What's Paul saying here? He's saying, what is it if, you, if you're being treated wrongly by your master, but you're disobeying him, and then you're saying, oh, look at how he's treating me. Well, that's your own doing. You don't get any credit for that, but it says, 
What if when you do what is right and you still suffer and you do it patiently and you endure it, this finds favor with God. See, sometimes God calls us to a life that's not just happy, happy in Jesus, you know, making your way through the, the rose petals or whatever. That, that's not, uh, you know, always the Christian life. Sometimes he calls you to a, a life of suffering. Some of you have health issues that you've had for years. And you may be sitting there asking God, why did God do this? I don't know, but he has a purpose. He has a plan. He hasn't forgotten about you. Maybe you're dealing with other issues here this morning. Don't ever think that God has kind of took and taken his hand or turned a blind eye to you. That's not the case. And when you endure those things that God has put in your life, it's to make you better, not bitter. And so we're to honor our earthly masters. We're to honor our in employers. We're to honor Christ in everything we do. The fourth thing there, we're to be kind and not quarrelsome. This is interesting. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, it says this, And the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave, must not be quarrelsome, <laughs> but kind to everyone. Have you ever met a Christian who's quarrelsome? Have you ever met a Christian It's just everybody's wrong and they're the only right one and they make it very clear to everybody that they have a corner on God's truth and the rest of the, hell, the world is damned to hell and it's only them that are right. And unless you do things exactly the way they think that it needs to be done, you're wrong and somehow less spiritual. It's a quarrelsome person. Well, it says here the Lord's servant, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but you have to be kind to everyone. Does that mean my boss is a jerk? Yeah, that means your boss is a jerk. Does that mean the neighbor across the street that just causes grief? Yeah, be kind. Don't be quarrelsome. There's some people that just like to argue for argument's sake. And it says, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. Gentleness. Some people are more gentle than others. Some people are more merciful than others. Some people are gifted in such a way that, boy, they could listen to somebody for hours and then just kind of lovingly kind of steer them in the right direction. There's other people, like myself, after 15 minutes I'm ready to pull my hair out that I don't even have anymore and say, what's wrong with you? Just do this. This is what the Word of God says. Just do this and it'll work out. We're all different. But we shouldn't be quarrelsome. We have to be kind. We have to be understanding. We have to be compassionate. And it tells us there in that verse the reason why. That God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, when you're out there trying to share Christ with people, you're out there trying to witness. I've seen some people that are, are just the opposite of kind. They're out there. They're condemning everybody to hell. They're being quarrelsome with anybody that disagrees with them. And they're standing on the, the street corner doing it all in the name of Jesus with a great big Bible. And I'm thinking, what a sad testimony that is. Now, they may be speaking truth, but it's not being heard by anybody just because of the way they're doing it. And see, we need to handle our opponents with grace, with gentleness that maybe God would grant them repentance because that's exactly what they need. Don't ever think when you're witnessing to somebody who's disagreeing with you, somehow your slick little presentation or your words are somehow going to convert their soul because that's just not going to happen. It's only by the grace of God. It's only when we take the word of God and, and speak it into people's lives for them to hear that God transforms their heart. He leads them. He grants them repentance. That verse there is interesting to me because we have a lot of Christians going around today telling unbelievers that they need to repent. You need to repent. You need to repent. When I look at that verse, I think you're telling them to do something they cannot do. <laughs> because it says the only way they can repent is if God grants them that repentance. And that granting of that repentance leads them to a knowledge of the truth. It's the same with John the Baptist. He, he preached a gospel of repentance. But it was only when God touched the hearts that heard John the Baptist's message that they were able to be granted repentance and led to a knowledge of the truth. 
We don't do this on our own. That's why we shouldn't be quarrelsome about it. That's why we should be patient, that God is working in this person's heart. Sometimes I I see Christians witnessing to people, and after the first time, boy, that person never wants to have anything to do with that person again because they were so rude and they're so obnoxious and so self-righteous. We have to be careful about that. We have to be kind to all. That's what the servant, the slave of the Lord is. And then fifthly, we serve because we want to get praise from everybody. (laughs) No, we don't expect praise from people. If you're serving in any ministry and you're only doing it to get a slap on the back saying, oh, great job, great job, you're doing it for the wrong reason. You're in it for the wrong motivation. The slave of the Lord doesn't serve to get praise. In, in Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, verses 7 to 10, here's, here's what in the Gospel of Luke it says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me? And dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? The answer is no. Verse 10 says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants, and we have only done what, our, what was our duty. When we serve God, beloved, we should do it out of a heart of gratitude to the Lord. Not looking around saying, oh, who's watching me do this? I'm on this committee. I'm on this ministry team. I'm on that ministry team. I do this. I do that for the church. You know, and everybody, oh, aren't they busy for the Lord? If they're doing it with the wrong motivation, if they're doing simply to be seen by men, that's their reward. That's what the Bible says. If that's your motivation, you just do it because you want other people to see how, quote, spiritual you are then that's your reward. You're not going to get anything when you get to heaven as far as rewards for that ministry or that work for the Lord because you're doing it with improper motivation. Whenever we do anything with the Lord, we should do it whether people are seeing it or not. And that leads me to the sixth thing here, that we please God, not man. We please God, not man. That we're not involved in ministry just to be people pleasers. First of all, it would be impossible <laughs> to please everybody all the time. You just would. You'd lose your mind. Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul addresses this. He says, For I am now seeking the, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? He asked the question. Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, the apostle Paul says, I would not be a slave of Christ. I mean, there was a lot of people who were unhappy with the Apostle Paul. Very unhappy. Think about it. Here he is, this Pharisee who was out there persecuting Christians on behalf of his religious beliefs, and all of a sudden he's transformed into this radical Christian. And now he's actually preaching the message that came out of the, the mouths of the ones that he executed. I mean, that's pretty radical. His people around him didn't like that. The religious leaders didn't like that. He made people very unhappy. He, he made them so unhappy at one point, in, outside of Lystra, they decided to build a, a monument of stones on top of Paul. <laughs> they stoned him. Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 5 and 8 says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would what? Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is Slave or free. See, this really emphasizes the subordinate, obligatory, responsible nature of service that we should have in our lives 
in relationship to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The slave owns, owes his master, the slave owes his master exclusive and absolute obedience. When he did these things, his work didn't earn him a you know, clap or praise or anything like that. He was only doing what he was owed as a slave. Jesus Christ had bought Paul with his own blood. And so Paul was no longer his own. But he belonged exclusively to Christ to do his will. And for Paul, Christ was the center of his life. Everything he did, he passed through that filter. Does God want me to do this or not? It's not just up to me. And so Paul was no longer his own. You just look at how many times he refers to Christ there in this first chapter over and over and over again, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his name's sake, Jesus Christ. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, Jesus my exclusive master because he bought me with his own blood? Do I view my daily life as not my own, but belonging to Jesus who, and to serve him? Do I seek to obey him, beginning even at the thought level of my life? Is he central to my thoughts, my words, and my activities? All those things are important that we answer those questions. And that's, that's basically my understanding of, of Paul's master and his relationship to the Lord. Well, thirdly here, we see Paul's mandate in verse 1. Paul's mandate, it says, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle. Called to be an apostle. Isn't it interesting, Paul didn't take a vocational aptitude test before he became an apostle. They didn't sit down with him, the career counselor, and say, you know what, you'd be make a great apostle. Just by your answers and everything? No, he didn't do that. Rather, he was pursuing his own religious career at the time. Rising up through the ranks of Judaism, persecuting the church. And that's when God knocked him down and God saved him. And God commanded him in Acts chapter 22, Get up and go into Damascus and there you'll be told all that has been appointed for you to do. I don't know about you, but there's something about The idea that God has a plan, has a purpose for us. That we don't just get saved, and after we're saved, we just kind of flounder around. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that God saves you with a purpose in mind. He's gifted you. He's gifted you spiritually. He's gifted you in the area of talents. He doesn't save you just to warm a pew on Sunday morning once a week. And say you're a Christian and kind of do whatever you want to do when you leave these four walls. That's not why God saved you. No, God saved you to serve him. In the New Testament church, when people got saved, they got saved radically. I mean, it it tells us that they went from house to house daily. Enjoying the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship. I mean, if we make it out once a week on a Sunday morning, we think we're doing pretty good. Can you imagine if we had meetings every night? If we had services every night? Had fellowship every day with each other? I think a lot of us would say, I, I like you, but I don't know if I like you that much, right? I mean, you know, we, we, we put our priorities on the table, and they're just all messed up. I mean, we complain if we're expected to come out once or twice a week to church. And even then, we don't do it. And a lot of times, we don't do it because, well, there's nothing in it for me. I've heard that before. I've heard this before. That's not the purpose. That's not why they gathered together in the New Testament church. They gathered together is to to, to have that fellowship, to build each other up. And what happened here with Paul, it says he's a called apostle. He was an apostle not sent from men. He wasn't put together as an agency of men. The other disciples didn't say, well, that guy would be good to have on our team. Let's, let's put together a little uh, uh, kind of a team and we'll see if we can recruit him. 
And when he says, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? No, he says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. That word in the, in the original Greek really has the, the basic meaning of someone who is sent. It refers to someone who's officially commissioned by an authority to a certain position or task. Kind of like in our modern government, you would think of ambassadors that way. Whenever they have a new president, you know, they always bring in these new ambassadors. And it's kind of a cushy job, you think about it. You go over in a foreign country, you live a life of royalty, basically. Everything's paid for. Nowadays, it could cost you your life, though, as we so recently found out. But it's kind of got a lot of, um, you know, stigma to it. Back then, cargo ships were sometimes called apostolic because they were dispatched with a certain specific shipment for a specific destination. That word apostle appears some 79 times in the New Testament. And it's used just a couple times in general, in a non-technical sense. Now, we say, well, aren't we all technically apostles? Well, it can refer to all believers because every believer is sent into the world as a witness of Christ, right? So I would say apostle with a little a refers to all believers. We're all basically sent on a commission by God. But apostle with a capital, you had to have certain criteria true in your life. When we're talking about the 13 men who served as apostles, Matthias replacing Judas, And Paul, these are people who met certain qualifications. First of all, they were all directly called by Jesus. Jesus directly appointed them as apostles. They didn't have a dream about it. No, Jesus literally came to them. That's why Paul says, I'm an apostle born out of due time. I I I wasn't there with the other guys, but you know what? Jesus made a special trip back from heaven, and he met me on the road to Damascus. Therefore, I'm called to be an apostle. The other thing that's kind of interesting is they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. Paul having encountered him on the road to Damascus after his ascension. They were also given, all 13 apostles were given direct revelation of God's word to proclaim authoritatively. They were also given something that we we know as the gift of healing. They had the power to cast out demons, the word of God says. And all those signs, those supernatural signs were given to them as a way of authorizing them as being from God, verifying who they were. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, it says that these apostles' teachings, these direct revelations from God that they were having, basically laid down the foundation of the church. That's why we believe today that apostles with a capital A are no longer around. Because we don't need the foundation of the church to be relayed again, over again. So when you hear people standing in front of other people saying, I'm an apostle of God, thus saith the Lord, as if God is somehow supernaturally working through them, giving them direct revelation, my suggestion to you is run. That's a false teacher. That's a heretical teacher. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people like that in the church today. God uses his word. It's, it's the canon is closed. He doesn't give us new truth. So whenever you hear somebody say that, recognize that, that they're probably a false prophet. Even back in Jeremiah's time, Jeremiah saw that there was imposters. The Lord said of such imposters, I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. See, they're claiming to be from God, but they're not. And unfortunately, some religious leaders not only give no evidence of being called by God to preach and to teach in his name, but they give even less evidence, in my mind, of being saved. You hear some of these people that are supposed to be the reverend whoever you fill in the name, and you're thinking, what reverend are you a reverend of? What church are you a reverend of? They have no church. They're just in the political thing, and, but they, they, they use the word reverend or they use the word pastor. 
So when applied to the twelve and to Paul, the apostle carried this special authority. And it is very important that we understand that was his mandate. He was, it was something that God gave him. He didn't sit down one day and say, ah, I think I'll change up my act a little bit and do away with this Pharisee thing and become a Christian. And That's not what happened. And, and the, the truth here for us, beloved, is we have to ask ourselves, is my heart in submission to what God has revealed here through his called apostle Paul? Is my heart in submission to it? Am I willing to listen to it? Am I willing to hear it? He was a called apostle. Fourthly, his mission, it says that he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was set apart for the gospel of God. What's interesting, you do a little word study on that phrase, set apart. And it's actually related in Greek to the word Pharisee. That was Paul's former association. That was Paul's former profession. And the Pharisees, when you think of the Pharisees, they proudly viewed themselves as what? Separated from everybody else. They wore different clothes. They had an attitude. That's why in the New Testament you hear the Pharisees say, Oh, I'm glad I'm not like that individual over there in the corner praying. They were set apart or separate from the the common Jews. And especially from the Gentiles, which they referred to as dogs. See, but now, ironically, you look at what God has done in Paul's heart. God has set him apart for what? To preach the riches of Christ. And he, not just to anybody, but to the literal Gentiles whom he formerly hated. Can you imagine that? In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, he says that God had set him apart from his mother's womb and called him by his grace so that he might preach Christ among the Gentiles. That's why in 1 Corinthians 9, 23, Paul said, I do all things for the sake of what? The gospel. All things for the sake of the gospel. See, we should be growing in our Lives to imitate Paul's desire here. So our lives are focused more and more on the gospel. First for our own souls and then to proclaim it to others. So ask yourselves the question, do I increasingly view my life as set apart for the gospel? I mean, that's why God saved you. That's his plan, that's his purpose, so that you could share the gospel with others. The question is, are we doing it? Are we doing it actively? Are we doing it regularly? Are we doing it in an authentic way? And then we come, lastly, here to his message. The message of Paul, he simply says, the gospel of God. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. God. You do your little word study here, you realize that of God is in the genitive nature, which means that it, it, the gospel comes from God. Isn't that a blessing? That this gospel isn't something we made up? It's not some message that somebody just sat down and said, oh, let's come up with some good news. In Acts Chapter 2, it tells us, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It's Peter's sermon here at Pentecost. Look at verse 23, Acts 2, 23. It says, this Jesus delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He devised a plan before the foundation of the world, beloved. This wasn't God's reaction to Adam and Eve sinning in the garden. He didn't, after they ate of the fruit, go, Oh no, what am I going to do now? I guess I've got to come up with a plan. No. It was already devised. It was already planned. It was already purposed. In Acts chapter 4, verse 27, 
and 28, it says this, For truly in this city they, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius, Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The gospel of God is not a reaction from God. It's a plan and a purpose anchored in all eternity. And he makes this very clear in his first sentence. He he doesn't want anybody to have any confusion regarding the specific good news about which he is speaking. He didn't want anybody to get confused in Romans when he was writing this letter to them that somehow this is something that's coming from Paul. No, he says that he is called to be an apostle apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Not the gospel of Paul. This wasn't Paul's good news. This was God's good news. That word, the gospel, the good news, really relates back to that time when a a leader would have a proclamation and he would send out some some news out and they would herald it out into the the cities and the villages. And you would know it was not the, the guy who was telling you that. It was not his message. It was someone else's message. There were generally favorable events. You see the old time... Movies and things like that. Somebody comes into the town. Here you, here you know. That, that's that kind of a deal. Now, especially because he was writing to believers in the Roman capital, Paul wanted to make sure that his, his readers understood the good news that he proclaimed was an entirely different nature than the trivial proclamations concerning some emperor or leader or king. The fact that it was of God meant that God was the source of it. It was not man's good news, but it was God's good news for man. The question that I found myself asking was, I wondered why God would condescend to bring good news to a world that rejects and scorns him. Why would God do that? I mean, when you look at the nature of man, I would say no one deserves to hear this good news, much less be saved by it. The preacher that I mentioned earlier, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who did such a wonderful work on Romans, he told a fascinating story about a a Frenchman who was dearly loved by his mother, But early on in his life, he fell into immorality. And he was greatly fond of an unprincipled woman. (laughs) And she was fond of him. And eventually she managed to gain his total devotion. And when the mother sat down with this French boy to try to draw her son away from that wicked and debased association with this woman the other lady became enraged and she railed at the young man accusing him of not truly loving her and insisting that he demonstrate his commitment to her by getting rid of his mother I mean you can't imagine such a thing the man resisted until a night when in a drunken stupor he was persuaded to carry out this horrible plan and according to the story the man rushed from the room to his mother's house nearby he brutally killed her and he even cut out her heart to take to this vile companion as proof of his wickedness and as he rushed from this grievous act he stumbled and he fell upon which the bleeding heart is said to have cried out my son Are you hurt? Donald Gray Barnhouse commented, he says, that is the way God loves. See, Paul himself was living proof of God's great love, his great mercy, his great wonderful grace. And though even he opposed Christ and he persecuted the church, 
God had made him the church's chief spokesman. It's hard to turn to a page in the New Testament without turning to a letter of Paul. He could imagine no greater role than being set apart to God for the proclamation of his gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ. Perhaps this is one of the reasons he was so effective. I mean, who knew better than the Apostle Paul just how good the good news really was? 1 John chapter 4 puts it this way, In this is love. Not that we loved, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins, satisfaction for our sins. See, the gospel, beloved, is all about God. It's both, he is both its source and its object. The gospel is about how we as sinners can be rightly related to the holy God through the sacrifices of His own Son. It's about how God can both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I like the way John Piper puts it. He says, God is the gospel. God is the gospel. He's the treasure that we receive when we believe the good news that Jesus died for our sins. When you stop and you think about that, you have to ask yourself the question, Am I growing to know this God who loves me so much more deeply? Or am I just stagnant? Do I understand that I'm called to be a slave of Christ? That I don't have the right to just go do whatever I want to do when I want to do it? Do I understand that I'm called to live in total submission to the Master? That we have no rights of our own? Do we understand that We're to honor our earthly master at all times, not just on Sunday morning. That he requires us to be kind to all, not quarrelsome. That we serve not to get a slap on the back or a good job, but we serve to please God, not man. We need to embrace what we've spoken about here this morning. I think that if more Christians embrace what Paul truly embraced, I think the world would be a much different place. The church definitely would be a much different place because we would be living for Christ and not our own desires, our own will. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that as we continue through this book that you will provide through your spirit the power to change our hearts, our minds, cause us to be drawn into our relationship more and more with you. Draw us more into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ.